Um, before we uh, uh, move forward in the text, though, uh, I wanted to thank James Conrad, uh, uh, listener uh, and a classicist, uh, who reached out to me to uh, to clarify an interesting thing, which actually I think is is really relevant. So I'm really glad, James, that you mentioned this. Um, he was confirming. Remember, we were talking about Cato and the sands of the desert uh, and the. Uh, heroic but ultimately fruitless, uh, you know, march of Cato uh, the Younger uh, in order to try to help Pompey and, in the Civil War. And so he was confirming, of course, first, yes, that was he, he, he confirmed two things about this story. First, yes, definitely Cato the Younger. Uh, secondly, uh, it didn't actually happen. Uh, that is to say, uh, most classes believe that it was, in fact, fictional. Um, this, I think, is very important, actually, and very instructive, uh, because that's not true. It did happen. That is to say, it happened in Lucan. Um, Lucan tells the story in the Pharsalia. Um, so it's in a poem, and therefore, it's real. Do you see what I mean? So this just picks up on what we were talking about last time with uh, Caponius, right? Because, like, also another thing that didn't happen was, like, the giant Caponius's rebellion against Jove, probably a historical, gonna go out on a limb and guess that that didn't actually happen. Um, right, Jennifer says, as real as Zeus. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, and this, of course, again, we were talking about this last time. This is a trend that we've been able to see, right? If it's... Dante is almost at no point. I mean, has he at any point really thoroughly claimed that this is real, that this is historical? Um, not only is he, you know, is it a vision, right? And he is, he sort of said that it was a vision, but he also, um, like the fabric of the reality that he's building is a reality that's based less on history, less even on the Bible than it's based on the classical poets and the poetic traditions. And this is why we are seeing characters, not just like mythological characters, but poetic characters, right? Who have, um, uh, who have reality a kind of reality, right? A poetic reality. Um, do, is, is that story only in Lucan? Did he make that up? That's, you know, did Dante know that it was not historical? No, I don't know that it necessarily did. They, uh, you know, if it's in Lucan, they probably believed it, right? Uh, that it was historical. However, um, that's the reality that he's working with, that he's dealing with, that he's been interacting with this whole time. And so actually, I think that that's a really interesting and important point, um, uh, which, uh, again, even if Dante didn't intend that, right, even if Dante had no idea that it did not exist in history, but only existed in poetry, I don't think he'd have matter. He'd have cared beans about that um, because it uh, it's it's it, it still nevertheless exactly fits. There is a kind of. There is a way in which the classic, especially Virgil and Ovid and Statius and Lucan, are forming the basis. And Horace, but he's less narrative, so, um, you know, more the first four, are forming a kind of base, a kind of sort of quasi-historical, right? A kind of poetic framework that he himself is operating within. And... 
both kind of correcting them, but also in a sense confirming them, in a sense contextualizing them, right? That um, Dante's poem itself is, you know, sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, right? And yes, he can, because, you know, famously, as the quote goes, you know, when you see, when you stand on the shoulders of giants, because you're standing on the shoulders of giants, you can see farther than they can. Um, and that is the whole attitude of the Middle Ages towards the classical authors. Yes, they know more. Um, they can clarify things and correct things that the, that the classical authors said. But that's because they're standing on their shoulders. Um, and so they do it definitely with that attitude. Um, but... Um, yeah, and Jameson, you're absolutely correct about that, uh, that truth is more important than reality uh, in the medieval paradigm. Um, yes, and that historicity is not the same as history. Absolutely. This is something that is so often misunderstood. I have to admit, I get super annoyed by so many uh, less professional historians than people who like to talk about history. Um, to be honest, there are very few historical podcasts that I really like for this reason, uh, because almost all of them completely misunderstand and mischaracterize the medieval approach to history. Um, uh, there's all there's always all this debunking, uh, this sort of quite silly debunking um, of medieval history. Um, and I say silly uh, because it's entirely missing the point. It would be like looking at medieval art. Right. Um, I, for instance, I'm remembering, I'm just like one image just jumped into my head completely out of context, um, but it was on uh, stained glass, I think, uh, and it was a, it was a, it was a historical, it was like a, a narrative, sequential piece, um, and in the central part of it, like one, it, it, there was uh, this one woman who was crossing an ocean on board of on board a ship, and the way that that was depicted, because she's the central figure of the story, the way it was depicted, you had a, a ship, a boat with two masts. And between the two masts, her head was enormous. Like from her chin to the crown of her head was taller than the masts. It was like the whole boat was just like this little platform that her head was sticking out of as it was sailing across the sea, right? Now, I'm not saying that you can't criticize that. I'm not saying that like this is like the best art ever, right? I'm not saying it's, it's above criticism. But what I am saying is that if you look at that and you say... Those medievals didn't know how to... Their, their art was horrible. Heads are not that size, right? The relative proportion of heads and boats are nothing like that. And so I have proven by showing that detail that that picture sucks. And it's like, that is such a... Just a silly... Silly is the word I keep coming back to. It's such a silly approach to medieval art. If you're talking that way about medieval art, you are not understanding at all. You're not even making an attempt to understand how medieval art works. And medieval history is very similar. They were not interested in recording facts and details with accuracy. Um, they were interested in telling the truth. They were interested in telling the story, the important story. Um, and if you just go through and start quibbling with it, you're missing the point. Uh, and again, you're you're. It's like worse than a straw man uh, argument. Uh, it's um, anyway. It's I, I just I get um, uh, vexed. Uh, but anyway, um, so yes. But Jameson, you're absolutely right. Um, what he 
Dante would not have, I think, even been interested at all. Uh, I doubt that he knew that it didn't actually happen. The march, I mean, across the desert. Um, I doubt he, he, he probably believed that it was historical. Um, but if he did know um, that it was not historical, I don't think he would have cared at all. I don't think it would have impacted um, what he thought of that passage of Lucan um, and how he utilized it within his story. Um, anyway, okay. Um, uh, okay. But I hope to come back to this issue, this question of the status of poetic reality, um, because Dante is going to take a long, hard look at that um, pretty... Uh, pretty uh, soon. Pretty soon. Maybe we'll get there. We'll see. Um, but anyway, all right. Back to uh, the beginning here of Canto 15. So we had just passed Caponius, uh, the blaspheming giant that we discussed last time. And they had set out along the banks of the river, which, remember, rises up above. There's like a, 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 a raised bank right, that they're walking on. And the raining um, fire, right, is sort of blocked by the sort of mist above the river. So there's, so again, this is, this is our picture here, right? Here's Dante and Virgil up on the bank there, and they're going to see the folks who are running. So you remember there are three groups of people in the burning desert. There's those who are lying on their backs, and those are the ones we've already met. Those are the blasphemers, right, who are directly violent against God lying and staring straight up towards God, right? And um, in Caponius' case, of course, still blaspheming. There are also those who run around, and there are those who sit. And those are the two that we're going to be looking for now. Now, um, here's, here's a question. What sin is being punished in this section? What is the second zone of the violent against God all about? And this is kind of a trick question. It's a trick question because, of course, like your notes and the headings uh, and like running titles and things like that in the text tell you, right? Um, but my real question is, how do we know? How do we know? What evidence do we have of what sin is being punished here? And we've seen this in times past, right? We've seen this in other circles of hell, where in some places it's made much more explicit. In some places, uh, it's we're kind, of, we're, we're kind of led up to it, almost as if it's like a kind of quiz, right? Almost as if we're being asked to sort of figure it out, Um uh, we were looking at this in particular. The first time we were looking at this is in the case of uh, gluttony, right? Uh, up there in the third circle. Yeah, in the third circle, um, where we're finally told what the sin is, that it is, in fact, gluttony. But we meet Cerberus and we see everything else. And we get this whole description of the landscape. And we were looking at how the description of the landscape sets it up, right? Um, okay, so we are still... In the violent against God. This whole section is violence against God. So that's sort of the larger heading, right? So, you know, malice, uh, malice by force. Uh, so the violent, 
uh, and the violent against God, but but we're still subdividing, right? We're still subdividing under there. We've had the blasphemers as one example of the violent against God. Um, well, let's see. Let's see what we see. What are we told about these people? By now we were so distant from the wood that I should not have made out where it was, not even if I'd turned around to look, when we came on a company of spirits who made their way along the bank, and each stared steadily at us, as in the dusk beneath the new moon men look at each other. They knit their brows and squinted at us, just as an old tailor at his needle's eye. So we get three different uh, references to vision here, right? Or to the difficulty of vision, to the limitations of vision. There's a whole lot of squinting going on in this passage, right? How far are they away from the wood? So far that if he turned around, which he hasn't, he wouldn't have been able to see where it is, right? So it's, it, would have, it would be, he's out of sight of the, even if he turned around and was looking for the woods, he wouldn't be able to see it. So his location is identified by the limitation of his vision. He is so far out on the plane that he could, if he did, which he is not, he could, if he turned around, he could not see the woods anymore. That's our first reference. Then he sees a company of spirits and they're staring, they're squinting at him. Like, um, as in the dusk, beneath the new moon, men look at each other, right? So not in darkness where you can't see anything, but at dusk when there's not a moon, right? When, it, when it's the new moon. You're, you can see that there's somebody there, but you can't make out who it is, right? So he can't, if he did turn around, which he's not, he can't see the woods. They are close enough to see him, but they can't quite make him out. So there he he's not squinting at the woods. They're squinting at him and can't make him out. And then we get another simile. We get a double simile on this one, right? First, as in the dusk beneath the new moon, men look at each other. And then they knit their brows and squinted at us just as an old tailor at his needle's eye. So when you're so when you're trying to squint to see something indistinct that's far away or when you're trying to squint at something that's close up with like intense concentration i guess um you know uh arthur i couldn't help but think of that um arthur's wondering um if um camels are relevant here, having mentioned the eyes of needles, if camels uh, are relevant. Well, of course, Arthur, I can't help but forget. I can't help but forget. Well, that's probably true. I can't help but remember that we are in the desert, right? The one compared to the Sahara. Um, so we might be thinking about camels. Um, but uh, yeah. Arthur, I'm going to go ahead and say, yes, we should be thinking about camels. Can somebody remind me about camels? Another Bible quiz. Bible quiz. New Testament quiz. What, uh, uh, what do camels and eye, the eyes of needles have to do with each other? Can somebody, can somebody lay that one on me? Exactly, Jennifer. It's about wealth. It's about wealth. Jesus says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so um, in a deserty place where we might be thinking about camels, these guys are squinting at a needle's eye as if trying to size it up, <laughs> right? That's what their squint is compared to. Um, as we will see, this is, I'm confident, going to be relevant. I think it is no, there is no um, uh, accident that needles eyes have been referred to here. Um, because, of course, we will see there is one thing that everybody else that we meet in the rest of the seventh circle of hell will have in common, and that is wealth. Everybody's rich. Everybody's rich. They meet, I don't think we'll meet any poor people uh, until we get to the end, and some of them are famous for being rich and powerful. Um, and so there they are squinting, and their squinting is compared to an old tailor squinting at the needle's eye again as if trying to size it up. Uh, and of course, these guys have not entered the kingdom of heaven. They're here in hell, right? So, um, um, the I the uh, they their their vision apparently failed them in sizing up the eyes of their needles. But it's um, and Arthur, I I I commend you. I commend you for that. You you were the first to pick up on that. That is that is pretty commendable. Uh, 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 a pretty commendable catch for a non-New Testament guy, as you say. Absolutely. Um, um, anyway, okay, so... Um, but this still has to do with vision. It's still about vision, primarily, right? Um, and, yeah, Bruce, of course, is, as Bruce points out, it's also just, like, an eye, right? And so bringing us back to it. I mean, if you're, if you're looking at the eye of your needle you're staring your needle in the eyes, right? And of course, what these guys are actually squinting at is not a needle, right? That's a simile. They're actually squinting at Dante, right? Uh, Dante and Virgil are, if, if it's a parallel, Dante and Virgil are the eyes of the needle uh, in this particular case, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, all right. So we should try to remember this vision limitation context. Nobody can see, right? Um, uh, and remember that the first limitation of vision was Dante's. Not because his eyes are bad, right? Uh, but because of the distance that he's traveled. You know, that he, he can't see the woods anymore. Um, but um, but everybody's, everybody's squinting. So, okay, we'll try to remember that. And when that family looked harder, I was recognized by one who took me by the hem and cried out, This is marvelous! That spirit, having stretched his arm toward me, I fixed my eyes upon his baked brown features, so that the scorching of his face could not prevent my mind from recognizing him, and lowering my face to meet his face, I answered him, Are you here, Ser Brunetto? And he, My son, do not mind if Brunetto Latino lingers for a while with you, and lets the file he's with pass on ahead. What do we get from this? What do we get from this? What what is our what kind of cues do you see? Like, how are we supposed to respond to this? Do you think? Like, how, I'm trying to figure out what we're supposed to do. Like, what what I'm being asked to how I'm being asked to respond as a reader here, 
right? We were looking at the outflowing of pity back in Canto 13, right? With the, was it, wasn't it 13? I think it was 13. With the, um, the trees, right? With suicides. We were, um, uh, Virgil was outraged by the outrageous words and actions of Capanius. Um, what are we getting? What are we getting here? Rachel, we get surprise from him, right? We get surprise from him. Mutual surprise. I agree, Devorah. He's uh, now that Dante should be a surprise to the dead folks is not much of a surprise, right? Um, that it, nobody, no, nobody, there are a couple things one never expects, right? And one of those is to see a random living guy walk, that you know from your life walking through hell, right? So that's, this is not a common occurrence. In fact, how many times has this happened? How many living dudes have, uh, have, have, have come down? Careful, this is a trick question. <laughs> this is a trick question. So, who? Well, which ones? Who are the living persons who have come down here? So, remember that one of the parallels that has been persistent all the way through, you will recall, is between Dante and Jesus, right? That Jesus came down here into hell. But, Jesus was dead, right? That's when Jesus' soul comes down to hell. So, uh, so Jesus wasn't alive. Um, Dante's done something Jesus didn't do in that sense, right? Did not come in the body. And yeah, yeah. The, um, uh, the, it's, it's the mythological dudes, right? Um, Aeneas, definitely, right? Theseus, has been referred to a couple times, right? His um, less fortunate trip, Heracles, Orpheus, right? So the, there's there's a few folks in mythology, but uh, and that's probably true, real in the sort of world that we're in. Now. Hang on a second. Why would we be in this fake world, this poetic world? In what sense is that poetic world a a real world? Why should we treat it like a real world? When it's an allegory, right? When we're reading it allegorically. Um, I remember I, I mentioned this before. Sorry, I'm kind of like randomly jumping back to this now. But remember I mentioned this before. What's the first level on which you read? When you're doing a fourfold exegesis of Scripture, like, you know, quiz from the first class, uh, when you're doing a traditional fourfold exegesis of Scripture, what's the first level? What's, what's the very first thing you do? What's step one of a fourfold exegesis? What's the first fold? The literal level. Absolutely. The literal level. And, so, and the literal level is defined in various ways, um, uh, defined by many as what the author literally intended by the passage, um, but also very frequently uh, defined or at least treated as if the literal level is like the historical event that occurs. So, again, if you're doing an allegorical reading of the crossing of the Red Sea, the literal level is there was a dude named Moses and he led the Israelites across the actual Red Sea, right? So there, that's the literal level uh, of the text. The literal level of Dante's text is the poetic level. He's not claiming historicity in that sense, right? The, the literal level that his 
allegory occupies is in fact a literary level, right? It is taking its place in this poetic and mythological world that has been built by the poets. And are there higher levels than that? Yes. Just like because that's how we treat mythology, right? That's how we read Ovid. That's how we read Virgil is to read, yeah, to read the Aeneid and then also read read it for moral instruction, right? Read the moral level of, Aeneid, of, of the Aeneid. Uh, read the spiritual and the anagogical level uh, of, of the Aeneid. You can totally do that. Um, it works. You can do that with Ovid, too, and they love doing that, with that kind of thing uh, with Ovid. Um, uh, one of the... Um, uh, a really fun and enormously popular... Well, fun if you're a medievalist with a peculiar idea of fun, uh, work in the Middle Ages, which was enormously popular and very influential, was called the Ovid Moralise, uh, uh, the moralized Ovid. Um, and it's, an alleg- it's a moral allegorical reading of Ovid, especially the Metamorphoses. Uh, so you're getting like all of these like sexy stories, uh, sexy, sketchy stories about the gods. Um, and uh, the Ovid... Moralise is drawing all of these like really salutary moral lessons out of it. Um, it's hysterical. I love it. Um, but um, uh, anyway, anyway, uh, it's that's this, this, this is what you do, right? This is what you do. So um, it is in that sense that sort of Dante is putting his text forward. But anyway, anyway, um, I know there's a reason that I started talking about that. But I can't remember. Oh, yeah, that's right. We're talking about how many people were down here. Um, So, yes, within the poetic and mythological context, he's one of several, but he's ahead of most of them. Right. Um, The others only had particular missions and he has come down further than any of them. Now, nobody else has gotten the full tour, really the full tour. Um, And of course, there have been, as we've seen, some sort of gentle corrections of the other poetic versions. Anyway, so yeah, so Dante's arrival is sure going to surprise Sabrinetta. Why shouldn't it, right? Um, But as you guys were pointing out, um, uh, Dante is surprised as well. Are you here, Sabrinetta? Now, there are a lot of different ways that people have chosen to inflect that question, right? Um, Are you here? Are you here, Sabrinetta? As if it's not that he's surprised to find him, you know, I mean, he knows he's dead, uh, but um, that he's surprised to find him in hell, surprised to find him in this circle, right? Um, we don't know for sure. But okay. Um, now, Brunetto Latino uh, is um, Dante's teacher, right? Dante's former teacher, as he makes explicit later on. Um, And there is affection here? Absolutely, Stephen. That's very good. Um, uh, Carita, I've always put the inflection on you, too. Um, Are you here sounds like shock or even potentially mockery? Which I don't, just seems to me not to fit with this whole passage. Are you here, Sabrinetto? Like, he's, he's surprised to see him, 
right? That's where I, I, I've always put it there myself, Korea. I can't hear it any other way. Maybe, maybe we're wrong, but that's how I've always heard it too. But Stephen, I agree with you. My son certainly does indicate affection. Um, and absolutely, this guy certainly seems to be, he's, uh, his calling him, um, my son, right? Uh, puts him forward as, as a fog, as a father figure, as a, as like a mentor. Um, and, uh, the gesture, right? The touching gesture, um, and his response, right? He doesn't just look down and call out his name, um, as soon as his mind recognizes him, he lowers his face to meet his face. Um, that's what I don't like about this image, by the way, um, is the way that Dante's just kind of standing there. And he's kind of inclining his head a tiny bit, right? But that is not right. He's stooped over. In fact, he describes his stooping over. He stoops over until his close, face is quite close to Brunetto Latino, uh, as he is about to describe. Um... There's also a kind of um, uh, deferential element to it, the tugging on the hem, right? Um, he, uh, he, he expresses his surprise, stretches out his arm, right? Um, takes takes the hem of his garment, right? Um, let's look at the description. I said, with all my strength, I pray you stay. And if you'd have me rest a while with you, I shall, if that please him with whom I go. O son, he said, whoever of this flock stops but a moment stays a hundred years and cannot shield himself when fire strikes. Therefore move on. Below but close, I'll follow. And then I shall rejoin my company, who go lamenting their eternal sorrows. I did not dare to leave my path for his own level, but I walked with my head bent low, as a man does who goes in reverence. So we get a description of the tableau. So Dante says, I can stop. You want, you, do you want me to stop so we can talk for a while? And Brunetto says, no, 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 don't stop. I can't stop. I'm not allowed to stop. If I stop, I have to stand still for a hundred years and I can't beat the fires off. So let's not do that. I have to keep walking. So part of... The punishment of these people, of these sinners, as yet in this canto, wholly unidentified as to what their sin is, the sinners, in they have to keep walking. They have to keep walking. If they stand still, they're in trouble. Um, uh, yes, there is a Bible reference with the hem touching. Good call there, Michael. Anybody? Can anybody place it? Where else do we get the hem touching? Somebody reaching out and touching the hem of somebody's garment as he passes by. Very good, Devora. You've got it. The woman with the flow of blood. Uh, the issue of blood who reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment. Um, and uh, it's one of my favorite... Uh, the disciples aren't exactly snarky, but they're like snark-adjacent in their response to Jesus in that passage. When... Um, this woman reaches out and touches the hem of his garment and she's healed. She has this, uh, this, you know, 
hemorrhaging issue and uh, nothing has been able to staunch her flow of blood. She's been bleeding continuously for a very long time. And uh, she reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment and is healed and knows herself to be healed as soon as she touches his garment. And Jesus stops. He's in a crowd, right? Everyone is pressing around him in the crowd. And he stops and turns around and he says, who touched me? And his disciples say, dude, we're like, the multitude is thronging you and you're asking who touched you? Like, everybody touched you. What are you talking about? Um, but of course he says, somebody touched me for I perceive, in the King James, he says, for I perceive that virtue hath gone out of me. That is to say, power. But when, he, when, when, when the King James uses the word virtue, it almost always means power. Um, v- virtue, the ability to do stuff, to make it happen. Um, okay, right. So, um, so yeah, I agree. Uh, that is, we, I, we should be remembering that there. So the gesture has a gesture, it's a gesture of supplication on the one hand. There's a, uh, it's the parallel suggests something almost like desperation on Brunetto's part. And of course we get the Dante Jesus parallel again, which we've seen before, right? Um, Yes, and Bruce, you're right. The uh, she could not enter the temple because she was unclean because of the flow of her blood. Uh, so she is not only made whole; she is made clean uh, by the healing there. Yes, yes, exactly. Okay, um, so that parallel is an interesting one, and perhaps tells us something about him. I mean, he's got festering sores and stuff, so there's like, you know, some superficial similarities. Um, but of course, Dante doesn't have the power to hear men. Should Dante stop to turn around and, um, you know, confront Brunetto like Jesus does to the woman with the issue of blood, um, then he will not be cleansed. He will be burned, right? He will be in trouble. They have to keep going. Um, so the peril is not, of course, perfect. Um, but um, uh, good. David points out that... Um, uh, the um, he's following at the hem of Dante. He touched that hem previously. And of course, we were just talking about tailors and needles before. Um, there's a, like a garment motif that's going on here. I agree, David. We've got, a, we've, we've, we've got a garment thing happening and we've got a, a vision, a sight thing happening. That's another good, important thing to uh, keep in mind. Uh, Carita wants to know if we're keeping a tally on the Jesus Dante thing. I don't know if I'd do it, if, if I'd think of it as a scorekeeping thing exactly. But the interesting thing to me is to see the way in which that parallel is kind of leveraged, right? Like what it means uh, for Dante, because although, you know, it's always tempting to imagine, to sort of see it as like pure grandiosity, right? I mean, uh, to kind of, you know, put in a subtitle that's like, you know, I am the Messiah, right? I mean, it's a little bit tempting uh, to kind of read it that way. Um, and there are places where that, you know, it has that, that sound, you know, not going to pretend. Um, but I don't think it's just that. It's, it's, also, um, it's also a little bit more complicated than that, as could be said of practically every passage. So, um, okay. Anyway, um, yes, Stephen says, I think, I still think the not turning around to see the forest behind them sounds a lot like, uh, Lot's wife or rather not being like Lot's wife. Yes. By the way, um, those of you who are 
noticing all of these oblique references are playing the game exactly right. That is exactly what makes Dante so much fun. Um, do I think he meant these references? 100%. I 100% believe that he meant this is how it works, right? This is how uh, Dante's whole kind of um, poetic structure works. Um, oh, great. Yeah. Uh, Stephen uh, Walters uh, on Twitch, you'd been saying the same thing. Good. You said that a, a, a couple minutes back, um, the reference to Watt's wife about even if I'd turned around to look. Good. Good. Yeah. Um, now, the trick. First, the first trick, of course, is to notice the references, right? To notice this, the way in which Dante is establishing these sorts of webs of connections among, you know, between the narrative that he's telling uh, the the the, you know, the the things that are explicitly being raised and discussed, and the different like the 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 network of references that are being connected to it, sort of uh, associations, you know, almost like um, you know, like uh, like the you know thread lines on a cork board when you're trying to you know solve a mystery or you know a problem like that, right? You know, uh, like on a detective's cork board or something, um, you know. The next challenge, of course, is to say, so what? What if Dante is being paralleled or kind of anti-paralleled to Lot's wife? So what? What does that show? What does that suggest? And how does it fit with the other things? Like the woman with the issue of blood being paralleled to Bernetto Latini. Or Latino. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Okay. Anyway. Let's, um, but let's keep thinking about this tableau that he's describing here. He's described this very carefully. He set this up elaborately. Their relative positions and their bodily postures, right? Describe it for me. What's happening? What's happening here? They walk so they can talk together. He wants to pause and talk with them, but they can't stand still, so they keep walking. So they're walking along, side by side, except they're not both standing erect, right? Because Dante is up on a higher level. So what's Dante doing? I agree, Stephen. Dante seems rather condescending here. He is, in fact, descending down to be with him. Yes, quite literally, uh, I condescending absolutely so he's so he's he's looking down how does he compare his looking down i walked with head bent low as does a man who goes in reverence right so he goes with his head bent as if in prayer right so he looks like he is walking as if with a gesture of humility right with a gesture of reverence and there's the other person walking with him along beside. Now, can anybody guess what... There is a certain activity, right? There's a certain... Um, when you see two people doing this kind of thing, two people walking along side by side, one of whom is walking quietly with his head bowed low 
If you saw this in the Middle Ages, you'd be, from a distance, you could tell what was happening. You would know the context of that just by looking at it. Does anybody have any guesses as to what's, what's happening here? What this is meant to look like? Brunetto is a hint. The identity of his interlocutor is a hint. In medieval tradition, this would be the classic pose of teacher and student. Um, walking together is, since Aristotle, has been the peripatetic school, which means the school of people who walk around. Um, uh, Jameson, you got it. Teacher and student, that's exactly it. Um, ever since Aristotle, that has been the classic, you know, like the, 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 the classic, you know, the sort of the model, the modern model, right, is like teacher standing in front of classroom, students sitting in desks, right? Um, again, think about that visual image, right? The visual image of the students sitting in desks and the teacher standing up in the front of the room in front of a chalkboard. Um, if you saw a group of people positioned like that in a completely different context, right? You, you know, the, 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 the contextual cues were all weird, but you saw that. You saw a group of younger people all sitting in rows with one person standing in front of them in front of a board, it would immediately make you think of a classroom, right? Because that's our paradigm. That's the same thing here. That's the same thing here. Um, he is establishing this very pedagogical tableau. And Brunetto Latini, the hint, the, the sort of the clue was that Brunetto Latini was his teacher. Um, so and his he is a he is bending his head low as does a man who goes and which is would be the proper like a, if you were the student and you were receiving right this when you're being lectured to um, this is how it works right you you walk along next to your master uh, and you listen while your master talks to you right um, and teaches you and so he is adopting the student position, the student position of silence and reverence as he walks alongside his former teacher. So on the one hand, he is renewing their old relationship, right? He, he, he walks along looking exactly like one would if you were a respectful student. Devorah says, I like that. No expectation of awkward eye contact. Yeah, no, there's a lot to be said for it. There really is. There really is. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jameson, exactly. If we saw a group of people sitting in front of their computer screens listening to someone talk about medieval poetry, I do agree that the teacherly paradigm is changing in the 21st century. <laughs> so who knows? Who knows what the what the image will be, right? You know, what will be the next kind of uh, framing tableau which immediately says education, you know, to us. Um but uh, who knows? Who knows? Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so on the one hand, this tableau, very recognizable and perfectly appropriate and setting up a dynamic between a certain dynamic between them. Right. A teacher student dynamic between them and an attitude of 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 of, of reverence, even gratitude um, towards his teacher, certainly affection between the two of them. Um, but, but, um, 
Yes, Sarah, you're absolutely right. Sarah Grant uh, is immediately noticing the catch here, right? Um, as she points out, the image enforces and contradicts the student-teacher relationship because Dante is literally on a higher level from his teacher now. Exactly. Why is he bent low as does a man who goes in reverence? Not actually because he is going in reverence, but because if he doesn't bend way over, he can't hear the guy who's so far down below him. Right? And why are they walking together? Not exactly for instruction, right? But in order to prevent his teacher from being damned to a century of standing still with and being burned by fire. Um, their walking is a concession to the eternal torment of his teacher, right? To the, to the, to, he is um, um, accommodating their, you know, their gait and, you know, and his posture is also accommodating and he's accommodating himself to the convenience and the comfort of Brunetta Latina to, in order to uh, facilitate their conversation. But Sarah, you're absolutely right. Although on the one hand, this looks exactly like a classic, like a, like a just a resumption of this teacher-student relationship between Brunetto and, um, between, yeah, Brunetto Latino and Dante, it's um, also simultaneously a reversal of it. With Dante the one, remember the hem of the garment, Right. As if re remember the woman with the issue of blood who reaches out in hope and desperation. Right. Just to touch the considers herself unworthy. Right. But if I can just touch the hem of his garment, um, she doesn't want his attention or she doesn't need she doesn't feel she deserves his attention. But if, but if I could just touch the hem of his garment, that even, even then I should be healed. Right. Um, the perceived distance between Jesus and the from the woman's perspective in that anecdote is part of the story, right? And of course, Jesus turns and says, who touched me? And she, conf she comes forward and she's like, it was me. I touched you and I was healed miraculously. Um, and he blesses her, right? So he does turn and condescends to her, right? He, 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 he does not hold himself above her. Um, and even though she only just wanted to touch the hem of his garment, instead he turns and blesses her. Um, publicly, right, in front of everybody, announcing her to be clean, right, to everybody. Um, so that, uh, once again, that parallel also seems to um, underscore the, Sarah, exactly that inversion that you were describing of the teacher-student relationship here, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And David, I agree. It, uh, David says it looks a lot like a parent walking with their child. The unevenness, right? Yes, yes. I mean, if you're walking along next to a young child and the child is talking to you, uh, it's often, you know, hard to hear and hard to convert without bending down, right? Without getting down closer to the child's level. And that, that's what Dante's doing, right? Getting down closer to Brunetto's level. Um, so yes, yes. In as much as the you know, adult-child relation. And of course, remember the teacher-student thing. It's it's when Dante was a boy that he would have been the pupil of Brunetto Latino. So, I mean, it's... it's um, there is a, a grown-up and child element of that relationship, um, that teacher-student relationship. So when I say teacher-student, don't imagine, like, Dante as a grad student or something like that, right? Imagine Dante as a 10-year-old. 
um, walking alongside Brunetta Latino. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Stephen, yes, that is the other element to remember that at the same time he's lowering himself, but he's not entering into sin. Um, he's not him subjecting himself. He's not going down onto the sands, right? He's not uh, himself entering into the reign of fire. Um, he is staying on the protected path. Um, so he and Brunetto are walking next to each other, but they are also separated by a significant gulf, a significant gulf which Dante is deliberately remaining on the one side of. Okay. And let's not forget the vision, right? Nobody can see clearly around here, it seems. Okay. Um, here's Brunetto Latino talking about uh, the Florentines, uh, who are bad, of course, as we know. But that malicious, that ungrateful people come down in ancient times from Fiesole, still keeping something of the rock and mountain. For your good deeds will be your enemy, and there's cause. Among the sour sorbs, the sweet fig is not meant to bear its fruit. The world has long since called them blind, a people presumptuous, avaricious, envious. Be sure to cleanse yourself of their foul ways. Your fortune holds in store such honor for you, one party and the other will be hungry for you, but keep the grass far from the goat. Doesn't that sound like something you should have cross-stitched on your wall? Keep the grass far from the goat. Just seems like, you know, wise advice. I can't help but think. Anyway, um, apart from the fact that I just love that line add to pieces, keep the grass far from the goat. Um, uh, it's kind of like not casting your pearls before swine, except angled a little bit differently, right? Um, okay. The reason I wanted to to mention this passage is not I'm not necessarily as as usual. I'm going to shamelessly avoid all the political talk, um, thus you know depriving you of like one whole massive layer of the complexity of Dante's work. Um, my apologies. Uh, but anyway, uh, what I main reason I wanted to look at this passage was to, to, to try to understand as they're, you know, having established this tableau, this kind of tableau, which is pushing in two different ways at once, as we saw, um, what do we get? Like, how does their conversation go? How does their conversation work? What, um, um, what what happens there? And I agree, Stephen, he does like to speak in Proverbs, right? In addition to keep the grass far from the goat, we get among the sour sorbs, the sweet fig is not meant to bear its fruit, right? That also, you could cross-stitch that too. It's not quite as pithy as keep the grass far from the goat, but um, uh, also the other reason I love keep the grass far from the goat is of course, like, it's, it's kind of delightfully counterintuitive. Um, uh, that is... Normally, you'd say keep the goat away from the grass, right? You, 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 the idea of keeping the goat, the goat staying still and the grass moving away, right? Like it's, um, uh, it reminds me of that passage in uh, uh, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, right? Where the uh, duffel puds, the cat gets into the dairy and the duffel puds spend all day trying to remove all the milk from the dairy because nobody thinks about moving the cat. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, why is he talking that way? What's he talking about? Well, he's remember, he's talking about Dante's exile, right? Um, it would have been better, truly, 
uh, for the goat to have been banished and the grass to remain. But instead, the goat has remained and the grass has been banished, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so... But again, my bigger question. What does his speech here, the kind of speech... Not, the kinds of things he's saying. What's he doing with Dante? Like what, what? We've seen different shades do different things, right? Tell their own stories. We've seen them uh, talk about the future. We've seen them comment on uh, various stuff, right? Um, what's Brunetto Latino doing? And what does this suggest about what is this sort of how does it help us provide further context for that like relationship between the two of them as they're moving along do you see what i mean um your fortune holds in store such honor for you one party and the other will be hungry for you but keep the ga the grass far from the goat right yeah Kit, exactly. He's continuing to teach. He's giving advice, right? Tinged with prophecy, right? He's 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 giving insight into the reality. He's teaching history, right? Now, don't forget, you know, there's, he's he's giving this sort. He's alluding to the sort of mythic history of the people of Florence, right? Um, uh, which is that they're descended from the rock and the mountain, and they retain some of the rock and mountain about them yet. Right. They will be your enemy because of your good deeds. Right. Um, so he is. Giving advice in the context of mythic history, he's also uh, predicting the future, not the distant future, but he's predicting what's going to happen and how they're going to act because he's and so this is definitely he's the wise one. Right. Who is giving Dante advice. Um, so. The context of their words seems to support the superficial thing that we see. Dante walking along as, you know, a student, right? And listening to Brunetto Latino. If my desire were answered totally, I said to Ser Brunetto, you'd still be among, not banished from, humanity. Within my memory is fixed and now moves me, your dear, your kind, paternal image, when in the world above from time to time you taught me how man makes himself eternal. And while I live, my gratitude for that must always be apparent in my words. What you have told me of my course, I write. I keep it with another text, for comment by one who will understand, if I may reach her. One thing alone I'd have you plainly see. So long as I am not rebuked by conscience, I stand prepared for fortune, come what may. My ears find no new pledge in that prediction. Therefore, let fortune turn her wheel as she may please, and let the peasant turn his mattock. Um, <laughs> yeah, Jocelyn, that's really good. Jocelyn was uh, character characterizing... Ser Brunetto's tone as all the world will be your enemy, prince with a thousand enemies. Yeah, it does sound like that, doesn't it? Um, Ser Brunetto would probably tell some good stories of El Herrera. Um, okay. Um, yes, Jameson, that's very good. Um, Ser Brunetto is 
telling him what he can see, Serbonetto can see so clearly, right? So clearly about the nature of the Florentines, right? He can provide the explanation and context of their past actions in already banishing Dante, right? He can see clearly what is to come, right? In, uh, you know, what Dante can expect in the rest of his life. And Jameson is, of course, reminding us that everybody's squinting around here. Nobody can see clearly. Not Dante. He couldn't see the woods clearly if he turned around, though he hasn't. And, um, and Serbonetto was one of those groups of people squinting at Dante like people squint at each other at dusk in the new moon. Um, a matic, Stephen, is, uh, it's like a, it's like a, it's like an, a, a combination between an axe and a shovel, basically. It's like, a, you know, it's, it's a broad bladed, uh, it's, it's like a pickaxe, instead, except instead of a point, it's got a broad sort of shovel blade so that you can use it to break up, uh, very hard earth, um, uh, or like dig out stumps and that kind of thing, um, you may remember that some of the dwarves who fight in the Battle of Five Armies fight with mattocks, um, which, just like axes, can be turned in, you know, are tools which can be turned into weapons. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tomas Brunetto definitely was a real person. Definitely was a real person. This, this, is, this is actually biographical. Ser Brunetto was, in fact, Dante's teacher. Uh, when he was younger, and wrote a book, which was he's going to recommend it, right? Uh, Serbonetto is going to say, speak well of uh, of of my book. Um, so yeah, he is uh, he is a known author. He is a famous figure, um, and was in fact Dante's teacher. Um, yeah, but anyway, but anyway, Jameson, back to your point. Yes, there's. It seems almost certain that there's some irony involved. Just as, and Jameson, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the irony of the posture, of the tableau, right? The tableau which looks like a teacher and a student, but in fact is almost the opposite, right? Um, when you see what's actually happening. Um, and he is speaking like one who sees clearly um, uh, and who is, you know, very wise about how everything works. But he is, A, in this place where nobody can see clearly and everybody is squinting, and B, he's in hell. Um, guilty, apparently, of being violent against God in some sense. Any ideas yet? No hints so far, right? Actually, there have been hints, but they've been very, very indirect hints. Very indirect hints. Let's keep going. At this, my master turned his head around and toward the right and looked at me and said, He who takes note of this has listened well. But nonetheless, my talk with Serbonetto continues, and I ask him of who are his comrades of repute and excellence, and he to me. To know of some is good, but for the rest silence is to be praised. The time we have is short for so much talk. In brief, know that my company has clerics and men of letters and of fame, and all were stained by one same sin upon earth. Clerics, men of letters, and of fame. So this is a literary circle, 
that he runs with, literally runs with across the sand, right? As well as priests, clerics, right? Um, Famous ones, famous ones. Yeah, Stephen, there is some irony in the uh, the business about him teaching Dante how man makes himself eternal. Um, well, and it's especially pointedly ironic, isn't it, Stephen, under the circumstances? That is, running into him in hell and talking about that. Um, he is. Made himself eternal. Eternally tormented, actually, here, right? Um now, there are some who have read this whole canto as basically satirical, right? Um, like, that actually, all the way through, Dante's making fun of Brunetto Latino. I don't buy it. I don't feel it. I don't think so. But Dante's always... But there's irony throughout this, right? Like, once again, I feel, as I have felt several times, especially back... In part, back to Canto V, with the fainting in the Circle of Lust. Um, but even more uh, with Filippo Argenti and the desire to be violent against the violent folks. Um, you know, to showing wrath against the wrathful and everybody seeming cool with this. Um, followed by the undermining of Virgil and Virgil's authority with the demons at the gates of Dice. Um, and I guess, so once again, I think... There's this, there's, there's this, there's this gap, right? There's this gap between the experience that Dante's having and describing, and what, like, Dante the poet is sort of pointing out to us, right? Um, I believe that when Dante is walking along with his head bowed, he genuinely feels reverential, like in his own, in the, in the head of Dante the pilgrim, right? Um, he is. It's just a tableau of teacher and student. It's only when you look at it from the outside. Right? It's only when you step away from Dante and you look at it in the bigger picture that it begins to look like an ironic inversion, Sarah, as you exactly as you were saying, of that reverential teacher-student situation. Right? And and I same thing same thing with the vision and his wise advice. Um, the same with so many of these things. Um uh, Yes, David says uh, the source of eternity being in verse rather than God, you know, sounds like blasphemy. Uh, yeah, and I hear what you're saying, of course, like, you know, we're um, we're blas- blasphemy adjacent here. Right. Uh, blasphemy has just been recent, but it's. Folly, I would say. Rather than, um, uh, rather than blasphemy, exactly. Um, if you believe that your books, right, that um, poetry will make you immortal, you're not a blasphemer, you're a fool, basically. I mean, one can be both, of course, but um, it's not exactly that that's blasphemy. It's... It's wrong. It's not necessarily blasphemous, um, uh, but it's certainly wrong. It's certainly foolhardy. Um, it, remember that. I mean, just going back for a second to 
the business about fortune in her wheel, right? Like we're just in a Boethian frame of mind with the wheel of fortune turning there. And surely we should remember enough lady philosophy, you know, at that, at this point to, um, uh, to recall that fame is not, you know, fame for any of those kinds of temporal things is not lasting, is not worthwhile. Um, so, um, so what was the one same sin upon the earth? He's got to go. Sabernetto's got to leave. I would say more, but both my walk and words must not be longer. For beyond, I see new smoke emerging from the sandy bed. Now people come with whom I must not be. Let my tesoro, in which I still live, be precious to you. And I ask no more. That's his book, you see. The tesoro. And then he turned, and seemed like one of those who race across the fields to win the green cloth at Verona. Of those runners, he appeared to be the winner, not the loser. Notice the same kind of ironic inversion there, Sarah, right? Um, he goes sprinting across. He, he's got to make up for lost time, right? Because they kept running and he stayed to walk alongside Dante. So he's got to book it in order to catch up with them. So he turns and he goes sprinting out towards them um, and he he seemed like one who raced across the fields to win the green cloth at Verona. Of those runners he appeared to be the winner. But of course he's not leading them. Why? How does he look like one who wins the green? Because he's running he's running all by himself, right? He's like out in the open. He's, he's, he's broke. He's out of the pack, right? He's, he's going in for the victory except he's not out in front. He's behind, right? He's running like that, not because he's pulling away, but because he's catching up. So we get this like triumphant. Our last image of Brunetto Latino is is this triumphant one, right? He is like one who wins the race, except actually he's losing the race. He's in last place. That's why he's running, in fact. Um, yes, yes. Um, So, that's the end of the canto. What's his sin? Violence against God. That's the category. What's his sin? I'll take violence against God for 600. And the answer, the sin of Brunetto Latino. Does anybody remember the only reference we've gotten to exactly what the sin is? I say exactly, even that wasn't direct. The one indirect reference that we've gotten way back when the when Virgil was giving us a preview about what was going before they descended. When he was doing the overview Yep, Stephen is remembering the lines about um, one's heart denying and blaspheming the Godhead and scorning nature and the good in her. Yep, yep, that's it. But how? 
The references to the two cities, David, exactly. What were the two cities? The two cities that we were told we were going to encounter in the violent against God? The blasphemers? Sodom and Cahors, exactly. Sodom and Cahors. Cahors being the city in France that's fa the famous banking capital. That's the usurers. Homosexuality. The correct answer. What is homosexuality? Is the sin of Brunetto Latino and everybody else, all of the runners, everybody who is running, all of those priests and literary men. And notice men. This has been an all boys club. We've not seen women uh, running around on the sand here, right? Um, homosexuality is the answer to the question. Now, um, I've said that he gave hints, very gentle hints, as to what the sin was. Um, do you get it? Do you see the hint? Um, pedophilia. That is the perversion of the teacher-student relationship. Um, the association that some older men who take younger boys in for instruction do so for sketchy reasons. That was a thing, uh, you know, and uh, uh, sort of association there. Um, but again, a loose association. Now, Jennifer, your question is exactly an excellent one. Um, why does he dance around it so much? Apart from that one reference to Sodom, there is almost no way anybody could guess what the sin was. I would emphasize, and this, of course, is something that Berlini emphasizes very strongly in her commentary as well. This is really, really unusual. When in medieval moralism, you know, medieval moral poetry, um, the, d visions of hell and visions of purgatory, it's a, it's a popular subgenre um, of, you know, works of moral instruction in the Middle Ages. Um, homosexuals are almost always, I mean, you get a place where homosexuals are being punished. Um, and it is generally... Um, uh, it is generally extremely graphic um, when homosexuality is being, it's, it's like big, big time scare, scare tactics. Um, like you don't want to commit sodomy because if you do, here's what's going to happen to you. It usually features demons committing acts of extreme sexual, sexualized torture um, involving iron pinchers and red hot pokers uh, being shoved into orifices. And uh, like that's that's what you normally see. Um, uh, flesh being burnt and rent in extremely tender places. This is that th th this is normal. That's like. What one would expect to see in the part of hell where the 
homosexuals are being tortured within the context of the medieval tradition. Dante doesn't only not do that. He doesn't only not have that kind of like retributive violence against the sexual act. He seems wholly uninterested in the sexual act, right? If anything, I'm not even sure that he's actually accusing Brunetta Latino or others or the others there of actually being guilty of sexual sin, like actual sexual sin. He doesn't seem interested at all in sexual sin here. Um, even less interested than he was up in this circle of the lustful, which was already, from the point of view of that kind of traditional medieval poem, tolerably disappointing as a punishment for lust. Um, the whole tumbling around thing and them not seeming to have learned their lesson and not seem to be one whit sorry for what they did, that's not how it normally goes. Um, but... Um, uh, yes, David, of course, is remembering that the connection between Lot's wife and should have also potentially put us in a general Sodom frame of mind there as well. Another very gentle hint. Uh, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and the fire falling from the sky, absolutely. Recalling Sodom. Yep, yep, yep. So again, lots of... It's one of those things which, like, once you know, it's like, okay, okay, all right, now I can see... but. I mean, it's, it's, it's out there. Um, oh, interesting. Devorah saying now the, uh, the catching at his garment makes me think of Potiphar's wife with Joseph. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, anyway, let me come back to the other point I was going to make here. When I said Dante does not seem to be especially interested in, um, um, especially interested in sexual sin here at all. Think back to the circle of the lustful. What was he interested in there? It wasn't about... The act of homosexuality is more absent from this canto than the act of fornication was absent from the from Canto Five, right? I mean, it was Im more implicit. It was implicitly there, right? We were getting the love story, which was ending with the significant glances over the book, right? The Lancelot and Guinevere book, um, and uh, the tacit drawing the curtain on them reading no more that day, right? So, like, their story culminated in hanky panky, but it's not about the hanky and the panky, right? That's not exactly what it was about at all. It was about lust and reason, right? As we saw. Um, again, the, the actual sexual act uh, was only the consummation of the sin, not itself the problem, as it were, if you see what I mean. Here, it's even more distant. Very much more distant. But let's think about this. Let's think about this comparison here. Okay, yeah, fornication's a problem, but that's not what, that wasn't the issue. Right. It wasn't just that they had sex. It was their attitude. Right. It was the orientation of their moral souls. Right. Their elevation of appetite above reason, um, their subordination of reason to appetite. They're being um, <clears throat> blown about. Right. By their um, um, by their 
passions. That's the word I'm looking for, right? By their passions, by their feelings, by their appetites, um, which then continues with no reason to ground them, right? Uh, okay. Um, Sarah says, would this be homosexuality or pedophilia or both? The two were very closely identified because this was the uh, even not just I'm not even talking about practice. I'm talking about literary tradition, right? When you are looking within the context of the literary world that, you know, this again, this sort of alternate literary world that Dante is talking about. Um, what is homosexuality? What is the definition of homosexuality? It's about, it's always between an, old, an older man and a young boy. Um, that's the Greek model, right? That's in Plato. Um, so, um, that's, so the, I don't think that question, would this be homosexuality or pedophilia, would have been a meaningful question, uh, to most medieval readers, if you see what I mean. Um, those two are functionally identified with each other. And again, I'm not talking about practice. I'm talking about concepts, like about theory. Right, I'm talking about that that literary world. They'd they'd read Plato. Um, well, Latin translations of some of Plato. Anyway, um, okay. So, yes, David, you're right. Uh, the constant circling without halt among the lustful appears again among the homosexuals. What do we see? They can't stand still. Right, they keep going around. So yeah, it's similar, not identical. It's similar with the Sodom flavoring. Right, the fire falling from heaven. Um, okay, good. But also, but wait, there's more. Um, why is, why are homosexuals here? Why is homosexuality get you to this spot in this circle, in this zone? Why are you hanging out with the blasphemers or near the blasphemers? Um, why, why? How does that, how does that make sense? Yes, allegedly a sin against divine nature. Exactly, exactly. Um, it's like the, f it's like homosexuality, right? Remember, in this context, as we were describing it, and all the metaphysics I was doing before, it is like the fire falling downwards. We were looking at ways in which the blasphemy of Capanius <clears throat> and his fruitless, empty rebellion against God, um, pushing his own soul away from God, which his soul naturally, by its nature, wants to come closer to God, right, um, is like the fire falling from heaven. It's not supposed to fall. It's supposed to go up. That's where fire wants to be, right? Um, homosexuality was understood in exactly the same way, right? It's, it's, it is unnatural in that sense. It is against it is something that is against the fundamental order of things. Um, why a desert? Why a desert? I apologize if any of this starts to feel kind of graphic, but if you want graphic, you should read more medieval moralism. <laughs> I'm, I'm being very gentle, right? Um, exactly. 
barrenness and unfruitfulness, right? The unfruitfulness. There is no way that the homosexual embrace can lead to children, right? Which was the purpose of sex. Uh, so homosexual sex, one of the sort of markers of it, like one of the, the like the signs, right? One of the, the proofs, if you will, uh, in the medieval mind uh, that it was wrong, um, you know, that it's, that it's, you know, against nature in this way is the barrenness of it. There's no green, nothing grows, nothing fruitful uh, comes of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so barrenness, unfruitfulness. Um, now back to teachers and students. Let's not think literally here. Let's not think literally because we've already been instructed in this. We're used to thinking about things on multiple levels. Maybe he's saying Brunetta Latino was literally a homosexual. Um, maybe. But moralize it for me. Moralize it for me. Um, he's a teacher. What is a teacher trying to do? Ah, got it. Exactly, Jameson. Exactly. Jocelyn, exactly right. A teacher whose instruction does not bear fruit, right? Um, a teacher whose teachings are unnatural, who is supposed to lead students in the direction of truth if he leads them in another different direction, right? Um, then his teaching is unfruitful. Priests, clerics, right? teachers, men of letters, poets, right? These are all people who are, they have responsibilities to other people, right? They are supposed to be uh, tending flocks and, and uh, reaping harvests. These are the kinds of metaphors associated with those things, right? Um, I wonder how many of the people here are literally homosexuals. Again, there seems no interest of any kind in this stanza or in the next one. We're among the homosexuals here, the zone of, the, of homosexuality for two cantos. And in neither canto is he going to talk at all about sexual acts or even allude to sexual acts. He's not interested in that, right? He's interested in this stanza, in this canto, rather, sorry. As, uh, he's interested in teaching and in poetry. And in the next one, what's he interested in? Money. Money is what he's interested in. Um, here's the other thing that I like about that. Um that he is using 
basically the reading that I'm suggesting is that Dante appears to be using homosexuality not as he's not literally he doesn't seem to be literally talking about it. I mean, again, it's possible that he is literally talking about homosexuality and he is saying that um, Ser Bernetto, uh, you know, had sex with his students. Like, it is possible that he is, in fact, saying that. Um, but what seems to me more to fit the whole atmosphere of this stanza as we've seen it is that he, Brunetto, was a failure as a teacher. Um, think of their words. Dante is so grateful. Dante praises his teachings, and he speaks with great wisdom, right, and great perspicacity. Um, but remember, again and again and again throughout the stanza, we, we, the readers, not Dante the pilgrim, but we, the readers, are being pushed out backwards where we see through this, where we see the irony behind all of this, right? The one who can see so clearly is the squinter, Right, the one who is looks like the teacher with the reverential student nearby is actually, you know, lower and he's up and he's condescending when in fact he seems to be showing reverence but he's actually condescending. Um, all of those inversions that we've been seeing, this seems the final inversion, right? Dante thanking him for his teaching. Oh, you're I benefited so much from your teaching. Your teaching, Ser Bernetto, bore so much fruit in my heart. In the circle of homosexuality, right? Where again, I'm not saying that Dante the Pilgrim doesn't is, is is making fun of him. I'm not saying he's being sarcastic or something like that. I don't think he is. I think that Dante the Pilgrim means it, and his expression of affection for Brunetto Latino seems real to me. But I think that Dante the poet is pointing beyond that and is pushing us beyond that. So from the beginning all the way through, we keep seeing the inversion of all of these things. The conclusion I can't help um, but draw the same, you know, draw the conclusion um, that Dante the poet is very cunningly having it both ways. Showing affection for his former teacher, right? Heaping praise upon his former teacher and at the same time showing fairly clearly and even fairly forcibly it is he is in hell after all um, that uh, his teacher did not in fact know what he was talking about um, and of course this is a, a sort of a humbling that the, the, the sort of the figure that he the you know Dante the pilgrim is adopting here he's kind of a sucker right I mean he, he doesn't get it he doesn't understand that in a sense, the joke is on him here, right? It's, that's not the fair way to say it. It's not a joke, exactly, but you see what I mean. Um, yeah, Jameson, I agree. If we think about the instruction he was just giving to Dante, he was probably making a false idol of writing and literature. Yes. Um, idolatry is the other thing that is associated, like one of the other things very frequently associated with homosexuality in medieval in like medieval moral tradition um, this goes back to Romans 1 of course um, that parallel um, but again like unfruit and again this is why and another th reason why uh, it's in the violet against God and 
why I think it's so important to understand this whole homosexuality thing, not in even primarily in the sexual sense, but in this bigger sense. This is why it's violence again. This is why it's like blasphemy. It isn't blasphemy, but it's like blasphemy um, uh, in this way. Um, so, okay, anyway, but let's continue. Mm, almost out of time, but we can at least begin the next canto. Um, when they cried out, so um, these other, the, the, remember the other pack of uh, sinners was coming, right? The ones that Sarah Bernetto couldn't hang out with, so he took off. Um, the next ones come up. And, um, okay, when they cried out, my master paid attention. He turned his face toward me, and then he said, Now wait, to these one must show courtesy. And were it not the nature of this place for shafts of fire to fall, I'd say that haste was seemlier for you than for those three. As soon as we stood still, they started up their ancient wail again, and when they reached us, they formed a wheel, all three of them together, as champions, naked, oiled, will always do, each studying the grip that serves him best before the blows and wounds begin to fall. While wheeling so, each one made sure his face was turned to me, so that their necks opposed their feet in one uninterrupted flow. Okay, we get another tableau, right? This is a, a moving tableau, right? But another queer tableau. Did you, did you follow this? They're wheeling around like boxers, right? Boxing, done naked and oiled, like you do. I mean, again, when do you box each other naked and oiled? When you're in Latin poetry, that's when, right? Yes, like in your like in, in at the funeral games of uh, uh, of Anchises and that kind of thing. I mean, it could be either boxing or wrestling. I think probably boxing, Stephen, because of the blows and wounds, the reference to blows and wounds rather than grappling and throwing or anything like that. So I'm suspecting boxing. They did both. Um, both happen in uh, well, it's the boxing especially that happens in uh, in the. Uh, in the Aeneid, at the funeral games uh, of Anchises, as I, as I said. Um, wrestling is older, Sylvia, yes, but it's more Greek. Um, and uh, remember, they don't have great, so they know of some of the Greek stuff. Like, again, they have some Plato, uh, but they um, their primary text would not have been Homer. It would have been Virgil. So, um, uh, so yeah, it, 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 it could be either. My, my suspicion is boxing, again, primarily because of the uh, because of the the Aeneid uh, connection. Um, maybe the wrestlers were hitting each other with chairs. Not not that kind of wrestling, Arthur. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, this is not about the cardinal sin of professional wrestling. Yeah, no, I agree. It's not. It's not. Um, okay, okay. Um, so, uh, so what's the, so they're circling each other like antagonists looking for an opening, right? Like boxers or wrestlers, whichever one it is, right? As they're circling each other, looking for a proper opening to attack one another. So they're set up as if they are all three of them in opposition of each other, right? Um, remember, they can't stand still. That's against the rules. They can't stand still. They have to continue going. Remember, going, walking, with, as far as Brunetto Latino is concerned, that's associated with teaching. Um, 
he has to continue doing what he did, which is walking along, right, going along as a teacher, um, but on the barren burning grounds, right, uh, where nothing grows and no fruit ever comes. Um, but, um, uh, but no, Jocelyn, it is unusual to have there be three of them instead of two. Normally, for either boxers or wrestlers, you would generally find only two of them against each other. So the fact that it's three is a little strange. But again, they're not actually wrestling or boxing. That's just the simile, right? That's, the, that's our epic simile. As champions, naked, oiled, will always do, each studying the grip that serves him best before the blows and wounds begin to fall. Uh, while wheeling so, each one made sure his face was turned to me so that their necks opposed their feet in one uninterrupted flow. So, Serbernetto said, I can't stop to talk to you or else I have to stay still for a hundred years. They do stop to talk to Dante, um, except they don't stand still by running around in a circle continuously. Um, and I think, David, I think it was you who were pointing out before, recalling the tumbling around in a circle in the, in, in, uh, among the lustful, right? We do get an echo of that here, clearly. Um, but uh, instead of themselves tumbling, they are like a, a wheel together, right? Um, but their faces. Each one made sure his face was turned to me so that their necks opposed their feet in one uninterrupted flow. They're running around in a circle, but their heads are always turned towards Dante, right? Um, Dante is the one fixed point that their faces are always turning towards, which means I think their heads are going around in circles like in The Exorcist or something. But remember, they don't have bodies, so absence of a spine, I guess you can pull that off. Um, okay. So, um, that's, uh, that's fine. Uh, that's interesting. What do we make of this? What do we make of this? They are, on the one hand, they're they're all together, right? Um, but they're in opposition against each other, like fighters, like wrestlers. Um, but they're all turned towards him. Their faces turned away from the direction that their feet are going at least half the time, right? Um, hmm. Hmm. Virgil's words. To these one must show courtesy, and were it not the nature of this place for shafts of fire to fall, I'd say that haste was seemlier for you than for these three. They're running up to talk to Dante, and Virgil's saying... Given who those guys are, you should be running up to talk to them. Apart from, you know, the fact that you can't, right? But, you know, if you could, you should. It would be more seemly for you to be running up to them rather than them running up to you. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah, I can't help but think of the celestial spheres, too. It is almost like Dante is some sort of celestial sphere that they're revolving around. It is almost like that. Um, and when we see a revolving wheel like that, that's definitely one of the things that I think we should be thinking about 
is the turning of the spheres. And especially, Sarah, as you're suggesting, that kind of the turning spheres that are all oriented towards the one fixed point uh, does sound like that to me even more. Um, yeah. Interesting. Okay, let's keep going. If I'd had shield and shelter from the fire, this is... Uh, I, I, I should have thrown myself down there among them. I think my master would have sanctioned that. But since that would have left me burned and baked, my fear won out against the good intention that made me so impatient to embrace them. Then I began. Your present state had fixed not scorn but sorrow in me, and so deeply that, in, that it will only disappear slowly. As soon as my lord spoke to me with words that made me understand what kind of men were coming toward us, men of worth like yours, for I am of your city, and with fondness I've always told and heard the others tell of both your actions and your honored names. These are good guys from Florence. Good guys from Florence. Respected guys. These are not people that he wants to see soused in the broth, right? Like Filippo Argenti, you know, or the other enemies of his house, uh, political enemies. Uh, of one type or another. These are good guys. These are on the good side. He respects them. He admires them. He feels sorrow. Um, uh, sorrow, not scorn for them. Um, why are they here? Because they were all homosexuals? Perhaps. But again, this canto, like the previous, seems precious little interested in that question. Can we do another sort of moral reading of it? Maybe. Maybe. What, um... What are they famous for? What do they... What does Dante talk to them about in this canto? No. Not there. They talk about money. They talk about money. They talk about wealth. These guys were very, very rich. That's the main thing they were famous for. Being, you know, good guys and rich. And Dante praises them and criticizes the modern people of Florence. All these new money people in Florence who act so badly. Teaching and money. Now remember, we just saw in the second zone here in the seventh circle, the violent against themselves, there were two populations there. Um, in fact, we've seen this correlated everywhere, right? We've had violent against others, your neighbors, literally, like against their persons, right? But we also had the violent against their stuff, right? Against their money. Thieves were also there. The um, violent against themselves, the suicides, were in the second zone, but those who squandered their own patrimony were also there. Right? Now you'd say, wait, aren't those prodigals? Shouldn't they be up rolling rocks? No, there's something special about those who squander their patrimony. They are like suicides. So these rich guys seem to be like homosexuals in some sense. They are violent, just as thieves are violent against others, those who squander their patrimony are violent against themselves. These guys are violent against God 
in some sense, or rather it is like, um, uh, it is like homosexuality in some sense. Again, I think we have to allegorize it. I think we have to moralize it in some way to begin to see this. And it's not the same as the usurers. We're still going to get the usurers briefly. We spend very little time with the usurers. Um, but usury is the third category of violence against God. Um, that is unnatural, unnatural to make your money by make giving, by lending money at interest is a violation of the natural order. Um, but we're not going to get much time with the usurers. Um, and we have yet, yeah, Marilyn, yeah, they, they produce nothing. I think barrenness is another thing. They're also running around the desert, right, with the fire coming down. Um, Tomas, I wonder if it's also a kind of idolatry, perhaps, with them. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yes, David, you're right. Those who can't stop moving must have something in common with those from Canto 15. Agreed. The teachers, poets, and priests are like these wealthy political figures, right? Um, they're, they're not together, right? They don't hang together, but they, they are, they're undergoing the same punishment. There, need, there, there, there have to be parallels. And again, I don't think it's as simple as saying, and they all happen to be homosexuals as well, right? There's clearly other things at other levels going on here, Um uh, and Devora, other than what Brunetto says that he can't be with them, these are the other guys, so it's why he's got to sprint off to try to catch up with his, uh, with his other folks. Um, there isn't any other hint as to why they can't be together, apart from the fact that they seem to be punished like with like, right? And again, this is also why, Devora, I think that this is not just a matter of like, well, you know, they were all guilty of the act of sodomy, right? Because then they, like, why, why should they be subcategorized like this, right? I think it's the particular kind of, you know, unnatural act, um, you know, sort of sodomy-esque sin of which uh, Brunetta Latino was guilty of uh, is different from the, you know, the kind of sin that they were. So I think it's, it's a categorization thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Tomas, I think the idolatry, uh, is a useful parallel here, perhaps, um, as a way to understand it. They're, they're clearly different, David, as you point out. These are not usurers. It's not about taking interest, right? If so, they'd be squatting with the squatters, with the usurers, right? They're not. They're running around you know, with this team, right? So, um, so it's not just about lending an interest. Um, their actions are unnatural, are, of, are a, a, an act of, act of violence against the divine order in a similar way, um, but not identical, right? In a different group from Brunetto Latino and the teachers and poets, right? Um, Yeah. And so therefore I have to think about, so to, uh, I like Tomas's idea about the sort of idolatry, right? Um, making money into their God, which was, you know, it's unfruitfully pouring their, 
you know, love and attention onto their money, um, which is different from the misers and the prodigal up in, um, you know, uh, what was it, Circle 5. Um, different from those who squander their patrimony back in the woods that you can't see if you turned around and looked, which Dante doesn't. Um, so it's and different from the usurers as well. Um, it's also possible, Devora, that they're idolizing not only their wealth, but their position that their wealth gained for them. Because, Devora, I think you're right. Devora is pointing out that, I mean, they're just, la honor is just lavished on them by not only Dante, but Virgil, right? I mean, they, they are all over these guys. Um, it's affection that makes him wish he could step down with Brunetto Latino. It's respect that makes him want to jump down uh, and be with these guys. Right? Um, and yet again, I have to thank Devor that we're supposed to see through that. Right? Um, like in the last canto, I, I don't trust it. I don't trust the commendation of these guys. Um, uh, the very absence of any kind of condemnation of them. I mean, look at his condemnation. What he goes on to condemn, it's not about their sin. He doesn't learn anything from their sin. He learns no lessons from them, from looking at them. What does he learn? What, is, what, is, what are his reflections? So may your soul long lead your limbs, and may your fame shine after you, he answered then. Tell us if courtesy and valor still abide within our city as they did when we were there, or have they disappeared completely? For, ooh, uh, 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 Gouge? Gouglielmo? Gouglielmo? I'm not sure how to pronounce that one. That, that, that defeats my Italian pronunciation skills. Uh, Guglielmo? Guglielmo? Uh, Borzieri? Borzieri, that I can do. Uh, the first one, I don't know. Um, who only... Uh, Guge? Guglielmo? Um, who only recently has come to share our torments and goes there with our companions, has caused as much affliction with his words. Newcomers to the city and quick gains... So here's Dante's response. Newcomers to the city and quick gains that new money have brought excess and arrogance to you, O Florence, and you weep for it already. So I cried with face upraised. The three looked at each other when they heard my answer, as men will stare when they have heard the truth. Yeah. Um, tell us if courtesy and valor still abide within our city, or have they disappeared? completely, right? And then they point to the one of the guys, right? Borsieri. I'll just call him by his second name there, right? Borsieri, who, um, who's recently come down to share their torments, right? He's, he's, he's a newcomer uh, to the circle down there, right? Um, and um, uh, has caused much affliction with his words, given them a bad report about that, the direction things are trending in in Florence. And, of course, Dante has nothing, unfortunately, has nothing good to tell them. Um, yeah, so, um, and they turn away from him and face each other as they're going around in circles, right? As men will stare when they have heard the truth. So he utters this, it's not a prophecy, but he utters this condemnation, um, address, this address, this dramatic address to Florence, and you weep for it already. Are we supposed to see through all of this? 
I, I'm kind of thinking yes. So, Devorah, I think that you're right to be wary of all of the praise that's heaped on these guys. Um, uh, I think you're right to be wary of that. And I think that the previous stanza has kind of set us up for this, to see through these things uh, in this sort of way. Um, and, uh, and you're right, Kit, that they are, they're focused on their audience to the point of deformation. Um, yes, their heads spinning around in circles, right? Um, yes, yes. Um, okay, well, it is late. It is late. Um, I'm going to, and I think, uh, yeah, we'll stop. The next step is Jerion, which is a big deal. So homework. Reread the very end of Canto 16 and the beginning of Canto 17, the encounter with and ride upon Jerion. So if there's ever going to be an Inferno um, uh, theme park from which heaven shield us, um, I, there would be a Jerion ride, obviously. Um, but um, I want to talk about this because I'm sure you smelled the same thing I smelled at the setup, right? Um we get this elaborate, like, all of these pointers and flags, right, to what's coming next, and a huge moment for Dante as poet. Um, one of the biggest and famousest of the moments when Dante talks about his poem, it's when he names it, the Commedia. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so um, we'll, we'll see. Notice the references that he makes, allusions, the mythology allusions that he makes when he's flying on Jerrion's back. And let's talk about that. What's going on there? How do we what do we do with those? How do we take that? Um, OK, so we'll start with Jerrion and then we shall continue descending into the eighth circle of hell. In fact, next time uh, uh, we are transitioning officially to the fraudulent with a very brief stopover with the usurers, but um, uh, but apart from that, descending to the fraudulent. Thanks, everybody. Uh, uh, this, uh, you know, this can you know these cantos, as well as many of the, um, as well as many of the uh, the cantos that we've been seeing of the you know the stuff that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. A lot of this stuff is hard to talk about. I know. Um, uh, but I really appreciate uh, your, you know, your help as we've been trying to understand the, fra you know, Dante's framework and to try to understand uh, what he's talking about here. And I think it's uh, some really interesting stuff. But wait till we get to Jerry, on who's always been one of my favorites. Okay, thanks everybody. Good night, and I will see you guys next week. Will I see you guys next week? Yes, I will. I will see you guys next week. Good night now.